So welcome to our third lesson of our possibilities possible. To review, in lesson one, we introduced the problem of evil, the logical dilemma that says if God is all-knowing, all all-powerful, and all-good, then evil shouldn't exist. We discussed determinism and complete exhaustive foreknowledge, and that they are both I believe, inadequate attempts to explain God's omniscience as it relates to free will. Finally, we, we reviewed the nature of time being an attribute of existence, defining sequence and duration, and how God experiences an unending duration of time. Last week, I introduced an interpretation of Scripture in reality called open theism. In this view, the future is partly open to possibilities, and God is open to working with his creation in order to accomplish his will. We looked at how the ideas of the future being exhaustively settled and God being outside of time were originally from Plato and Greek philosophers. Augustine then took this idea and incorporated it into church canon. We then examined numerous passages in the Bible that support the idea of an open future with possibilities as well as certainties. We saw that the Lord regrets, he conf confronts failed expectations, he gets frustrated, he tests people to know what's in their hearts, he uses some if-then language, he changes his mind, and some other indications in scripture of a partly open future. When we first started discussing theodicies in our first week together, which, by the way, does everyone remember what a theodicy is? Anybody? It's an explanation or a justification of how God and evil can both exist. Well, I said that I believed in a variant or subset of the free will theodicy, and now that we've set the groundwork and we've established it, we can go and discuss it. It's called the warfare worldview theodicy. There is a multiplicity of wills that affect what comes to pass, and they don't just originate with God and humans. All evil originates in wills other than God's. Greg Boyd provides six theses, each building upon the last, that explain how evil can still exist in a world created by an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent God. Thesis 1. Love for created beings requires freedom. Love for created beings requires freedom. If love isn't chosen, it isn't genuine. She's not in here. Suppose I'm a mad scientist and I create a microchip that alters the neurons in the brain to force behaviors to match my idea of the perfect loving wife. It's so small and advanced that I can just drop it in my wife's ear while she's sleeping. Of course, I would notice little difference because Amanda's as close to perfect as you can be. <laughs> so every thought she thinks, every word she speaks, and every action she does is controlled by this chip to my specifications of the perfect loving wife. After a while, maybe a year or so, this would stop being satisfying. I would know, even if she doesn't, that everything she's thinking, saying, or doing 
is really me doing it to myself. Just like a ventriloquist and a puppet. The puppet isn't the one who's actually doing and saying what you hear and see. So for me to experience genuine love from her, she must have the ability to choose against it. God could have created a world in which every being constantly bowed down praising him and loved him perfectly. This would have led to a sin-free and risk-free creation. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote that this sort of world would have had no value. Something is only virtuous for created beings if it could be otherwise. This explains why things happen against the will of God. A couple of examples. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Spoiler alert, they didn't. Luke 7 verse 30, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So thesis one, love for created beings requires freedom. Thesis two, freedom requires risk. Freedom requires risk. Genuine love must give the option to go this way or that way. God can't give me the ability to go this way or that way, yet guarantee that I will go that way. This explains why God is not culpable for the evil in his creation. It's not morally culpable for God to create beings that possess possibility for evil according to their own free choices. It's no different than a parent not being responsible for their child's choices and their actions. Parents can't prevent a child from going down a path of destruction. Adam and Eve had the best parent possible and they still blew it. So doesn't having risk require that the future has possibilities and isn't settled. So thesis two, freedom requires risk. Thesis three, risk requires moral responsibility. Risk requires moral responsibility. As a free agent, my ability to choose to love someone means that I have the ability to choose to harm someone. My freedom to choose a level of love or harm for someone else gives me the desire to either bless them or curse them. For God to give us a capacity to love or harm one another is for God to put us at risk with each other and thereby making us morally responsible for each other. The potential to love or not is intrinsically relational. Others are affected by the choices we make. This explains why we have the capacity to harm one another. It's in the nature of love and life that we need to take care of one another. A parent's potential to love a child and thereby bless her is also the parent's capacity to harm the child, meaning the parent is morally responsible for the child. Also a husband's potential to love and bless his wife 
is also his capacity to harm her, which is to say the husband, to some extent, is morally responsible for the well-being of his wife. To the extent that we can love, we can harm. And how we use this potential defines our moral character. Additionally, our moral responsibility extends beyond those with whom we have explicit relationships. We are commanded and equipped by our Creator to love our neighbors as ourselves. Leviticus 19.18 and Matthew 22.39 This forms an implicit covenant between us and everyone around us for which we are to some extent morally responsible. The consequence for creating a world that we can produce good parents and neighbors who love and protect each other's children is that it must also be a world in which people may choose to despise, steal, and abuse little children. Thesis three then, risk requires moral responsibility. Everyone good so far? Any questions, thoughts, comments? I want to continue. Okay. So thesis four, moral responsibility is proportionately balanced. Again, moral responsibility is proportionately balanced. All things being equal, the potential to go one way must be balanced by the potential to go the other way. The greater the potential a free agent has for love, the greater the potential the free agent has for the opposite of love. If thesis two, uh, freedom requires risk, can be summarized as nothing ventured, nothing gained, then thesis four goes even further in saying the more that is ventured, the more that can be gained or lost. If my sphere of influence and ability to do good in the world is increased or decreased, then my influence and ability to do evil in the world is also increased or decreased. This insight is hardly new. Medieval theology had a saying, the corruption of the best is the worst. It's also evidenced in Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The principle of proportionality in one form or another is everywhere we look. Consider the internet, for example. It has greatly increased the dissemination of useful information, but it has also proportionately increase the availability of evil influences and evil inf information that can be destructive. This explains why some have the power to harm a lot of people. For example, Hitler and Osama bin Laden have harmed so many. Therefore, both were given the capacity to do so much good. Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela are examples of the other extreme. They have both helped a lot of people, but they must have had the ability to harm people too. John Milton, in his classic work, Paradise Lost, wrote this about Satan. As high he could have soared, so low he fell. The thesis four, moral responsibility is proportionately balanced. Thesis five, morally responsible freedom is irrevocable. Morally responsible freedom is irrevocable. If God gives me the ability to go this way or that way, 
he can't prevent me from going that way. I'll change my brain microchip in Amanda to make it better. Instead of making her do the things I want her to do, it'll just prevent her from doing anything else. That's better, right? <coughs> Ultimately, nothing would really be that different than before. God is unable to prevent me from doing something, not because he lacks the power, he's omnipotent. It's due to the kind of universe he created. He can't make a triangle with four sides. Some things are not possible in the universe that God chose to create. Not everything has to have a divine reason behind it or to be part of God's plan. Things happen that God doesn't will and he can't stop. God has all sorts of things that he can do to respond to something or even encourage a being not to do something according to his wisdom because God rules with both wisdom and power. Wisdom only applies where control is lacking. If I have 100% control over something, I don't need wisdom. For example, I don't need wisdom to know how to control a ventriloquist puppet. This explains why God tolerates evil beings or events. If God prevents me from doing something, then I genuinely didn't have the free will to do it in the first place. If I have the free will to grab a chair and bash someone over the head with it right now, God can't prevent me from doing it. God doesn't have to answer for why he would make me bash someone over the head because he didn't do it. I did. Sir. At his class, he stopped the Jordan River. Yes, he did. But that wasn't a free will action. It's just it's free will to stop it. His free will. God can do whatever he wants to do. It's God. He can't stop me from choosing to do something. The example of the Bible is Cain. He tried to. Yep. Since standing at your door. And he basically begged him not to do what you're thinking about you doing. And Cain did it anyway. So, if God is asked why he created the being that would go and bash someone over the head, then refer back to thesis one. So thesis five, morally responsible freedom is irrevocable. Finally, thesis six, freedom is finite. Freedom is finite. We are limited beings because we are not God. Our free will is finite. We only have so much. Our decision-making free will results in either us being free by nature or bound by nature. Whatever path we choose gets easier the longer we choose it. For example, water will freely run down a riverbed until it eventually will erode, erode the ground to the extent that the river's path is literally set in stone. Our choices will eventually become our habits. Our habits over time define our character. When we solidify our character, it shapes our lives and destiny. We first keep choosing to love and obey God, even when it's difficult. 
then we eventually become God-loving and God-following beings as part of our nature. God wants us to be like him and to be loving by nature. Through exercising our free will, we eventually develop a character to where we are unable to be otherwise. Let's suppose a spouse is tempted into cheating with a coworker. Once they say yes or no, it becomes easier to do so again the next time, and the next time, and so on. Eventually, the spouse will either no longer be tempted in this way, or they're no longer able to remain faithful due to continual past choices. This explains how God is still sovereign if we have free will. I have the capability to only do a certain amount of good or evil. My worst case amount of evil that I can put into the world still enables God to accomplish his overall will for creation. Let's use an analogy of a CEO in a corporation. God in his infinite wisdom isn't going to give away a majority 51% of the shares and running the universe. Other shareholders can make decisions and even influence the CEO's behavior and choices. But the long-term plans of the corporation are still fully in the CEO's authority and ruling power. God is not going to allow beings to have so much free will that his ultimate goals are not able to be, to be successful. Things may go against God's will or even prevent his will in some cases, but not against his overall plan. He may be willing to lose a battle, but not the war. So thesis six, freedom is finite. So we've gone through all six theses of the warfare worldview theodicy, but now I'd like to discuss why it's called the warfare worldview. The next section is a very basic overview of warfare theology. The warfare motif is not just a Christian worldview. It's existed in almost all ancient uh, pagan cultures as well. However, the idea of, or more to the point, the belief in spiritual warfare has drastically decreased in recent years. Statistically, the higher one's education, the less chance that they'll believe in Satan or demons. A Baylor University study has shown that 74% of all adults, but only 48% of those with a master's or higher degree, believe in Satan or demons. Other studies have shown even lower percentages among those with doctorate degrees. This is not due to more information or better science, but conformity to the current education culture where only the physical world is considered real. So let's go and start by taking a look at scripture beginning with the evidence in the Old Testament. There's a theme or motif about hostile waters. This was the primary way that the Old Testament and the other cultures writings at the time talk about evil spiritual beings and chaos. Here's a few examples. Psalm 104 verses seven through nine. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys, to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Psalm seventy-seven, sixteen: The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. 
Job 38, 8 through 11. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no further. Here's where your proud waves halt. Psalm 74, 10 and 13. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. Finally, Job 7, verse 12. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? The important thing to remember about each of these examples is that God is greater than the powers and the waters. There are also mention of several cosmic beasts in the Old Testament, Leviathan, Rahab, and Behemoth. First Psalm 74, verse 14, It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. Isaiah 51, verse 9, was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Then Job 40, verses 15 through 19. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God yet its maker can approach it with his sword. These passages are all mythical descriptions of real beings. Metaphors and allegory were how they were discussed in this time and culture. Another category of spiritual beings mentioned in the Old Testament were the rebel gods. Psalm 82, verses 1 through 7. God presides in the great assembly, he renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Daniel 10, verses 10 through 13. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. The Israelites were strictly monotheistic, meaning that they only believed in and worshipped one creator, God, and supreme being. But they did believe in that there are several other gods, or what we may call angels or demons that existed in the heavenly realms. The final category of warfare theology that I want to discuss from the Old Testament is the adversary, also called Satan or the devil. Here's a few examples of where 
this being is specifically mentioned by name. He's mentioned several times in Job chapters 1 and 2, but as an example, here's his introduction in Job 1 verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Next is in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Third example is Zechariah 3 verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. There are other allusions to Satan in the Old Testament that don't explicitly mention him by name. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan is depicted as the deceptive serpent, such as in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Also in Isaiah chapter 14, Scripture is talking about the king of Babylon, but as is often the case in Semitic literature, there's a double meaning here especially in verses 12 through 14, where Satan is cast as the morning star. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who had once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Ezekiel 28 talks about the fall of the perfect one. Similar to the Isaiah passage, this chapter is talking about the king of Tyre, but while also alluding to Satan, especially in verses 12 through 17. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. So who is Satan? He's a deceitful, lying, powerful fallen angel that originally accused humanity in heaven. The Hebrew name Satan actually means accuser. But now he exists on earth. Before we continue with the evidence of warfare theology in the New Testament, it's important to mention a few facts about, the, about this historic time period. Around 200 BC, Israel's belief that their suffering and all the evil that was happening to them being only a result of disobedience began to wane. About this time, we see an explosion of apocalyptic literature to explain evil using, the spiritual, warf using spiritual warfare. Apocalyptic literature comes from the Greek apokalypsis, if I pronounced that right, which means to reveal, disclose, or take off the cover of something. This genre of literature lifted the veil between our physical world and the spiritual world 
to reveal what was happening behind the scenes as well as God's plan for the world. The New Testament was written in the middle of this era and contains more spiritual warfare motifs than did contemporary literature. First, let's examine what the New Testament describes as the scope of Satan's domain. Satan is called the prince of this world. John 12, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the, this world will be driven out. John 14, 30. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. John 16, 11. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Some translations say the archon instead of the prince. Archon is a military term referring to the highest ruling authority in a given region. Luke 4 verses 5 and 6 tells us that all kingdoms belong to him. The devil led him, Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. 1 John 5.19 explains that he has control of the entire world. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Satan is the god of this age. The god of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Hebrews 2.14, Satan holds the power of death. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. The New Testament also explains that healing is freeing people from Satan's oppression. Acts 10:38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. This passage tells us that everyone who was sick was to some degree under the influence and the power of Satan. The sicknesses were not the work of Abba Father. Nature and natural laws must to some degree be tainted by Satan. Next in 1 John 3 verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Mark 5, verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The word suffering here is from the Greek word mastix, which means to whip or scourge. It denotes a flogging that is not from God. 
The same word is also used in Mark 3, verse 10, Mark 5, 29, Luke 7, 21, Acts 22, verse 24, and Hebrews 11, verse 36, to describe either suffering or actual beatings at the hand of another. Matthew 12, verse 22, Then they brought him, Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. Mark 9, verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Luke 4, verse 39. So he, Jesus, bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Luke 8, 24. The disciples went and woke him, Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Raging waters. They're reminding you of one of what we saw in the Old Testament passages about spiritual warfare? Interesting. Jesus' warfare agenda was to preach and demonstrate the kingdom. So what is a kingdom? It's a bunch of people who have a king. Okay, a bunch of people that have a king. That's true. Anybody else? Any thoughts on what a kingdom is? Subjects. Kingdom has subjects. I think a kingdom is also a king's area of power and authority. Satan has the whole earth under his area of ruling power. As baptized believers, we collectively are the temple of God and the body of Christ. As we go and make disciples, we expand God's rule and expand his kingdom on earth. As God's realm spreads, Satan's realm decreases. Mark 3, verses 14 and 15. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Mark 6, verse 7, and then 12 and 13. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Down to verses 12 and 13. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Luke 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Spiritual warfare is also mentioned in the summary statements of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, 23 and 24. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Luke 6, 18 and 19, who had come to hear him, Jesus, and to be healed of their diseases. 
those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Luke 7, verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Jesus' first teaching about the church includes aspects of warfare theology. Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In order to understand this passage better, we need to define some terms. The rock that Jesus mentions is Peter's confession of the man Jesus' divinity. Hades is the Greek word referring to the realm of the dead or death itself. It's also important to point out that gates are defensive not offensive structures. Therefore, Jesus is saying that the church takes the offensive and prevails over and defeats death because Jesus is both human and divine. Jesus and natural evil. In our first class, when we talked about the problem of evil, we talked about two types of evil. Moral evil, evil that originates with another being, and natural evil, evil that happens naturally in the world. I put natural evil in quotes because I believe there's no such thing as natural evil. All evil is ultimately moral evil. Scripture tells us that spiritual beings were given authority over regions, domains, or spheres of influence, to use Jude Six's wording. When some spiritual beings and angels rebelled, they use their powers against the will of God. Sicknesses, diseases, disabilities, and death that Jesus healed, cured, and exercised were all a natural part of the world and influenced by evil, impure, unclean, and demonic spirits. In Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan displays power over nature. He had the power to control fires from heaven, wind, and bodily sores. In Hebrews 2.14, which we looked at earlier, Scripture tells us that Satan holds the power of death. Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, Satan in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. All three synoptic gospels mention Jesus rebuking the storm and the sea. Matthew 8, verse 26. Jesus replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. Mark 4, verse 39. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still! And the wind died down. It was completely calm. Luke 8, 24. The disciples went and woke Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. 
He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. So was this something evil, or was this just something that he allowed to happen so that he could present his power for the evidence to them that he is God? Both. The word that's used to, to be translated rebuked in these passages is the Greek word epitimao. It's the same word that Jesus used against the devil and evil spirits. And he used it here to rebuke the wind and the, and the seas. The same word epitimao is used in Matthew 17, 18, Mark 1, 25, Mark 9, 25, Mark 10, 48, Luke 4, 35 through 41, Luke 9, 42, and Jude 9 to describe rebuking the devil and uh, evil, other evil angels. However, I want to emphasize this does not mean that all storms are demonic. Now let's talk about the ongoing warfare that exists today. As we already read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Although in principle he is defeated, Satan is still the God of this age. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Satan still controls the world. 1 Peter 5.8 Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion. Finally, in Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The world is still an evil place under Satan's authority. There exists this already and not yet tension in the New Testament and today. Jesus did everything that was needed, but the promised kingdom, the new heavens and new earth, is not fully realized yet. Let me give an example to better understand the concept. If I turned off the light in this room and then flip the light switch back on, we would all say that the light appears almost immediately, right? If you were a muon particle, you would never say that. That's because muon particles don't speak. But a muon particle is a subatomic particle that travels close to the speed of light and has a lifespan of 2.2 microseconds. Due to their speed and lifespan, they experience time differently. It may take multiple generations for a muon particle to experience the light turning on and filling this entire room. Children muons would ask their parents, why isn't the light on? We've been told it'd be soon. Daddy re muons respond back in confusion, I don't know, I'm a muon. <laughs> <laughs> From God's perspective, even a few thousand years is like a fraction of a second compared to infinity. This year would go, much go by much quicker for me than for my five-year-old daughter Abigail because I'm a little bit older God's been around for infinity, so he measures time even faster than we do. He's definitely more patient when it comes to bringing about the new heavens and new earth 
as well as waiting on us to come around to his will and develop a relationship with him. Another fact about the ongoing warfare is that Christians are soldiers. 2 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. We are told that as Christians, we must continue to battle the kingdom of darkness in our first, our minds. Romans 12 verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We also battle the kingdom of darkness in our hearts. Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Finally, Christians battle the kingdom of darkness in our lives. Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. Anybody have any questions or comments from so far? Thoughts, ideas? Because that's all I have so far for tonight on the warfare worldview. Next week, we're going to conclude this class by examining some of the arguments and objections that some have against open theism and the open view of the future. Comments, thoughts, questions, anything? <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. Okay. Go ahead, Mike. God existing outside of time, you're saying that uh, Aristotle um, subscribed to that. Right. Uh, I know that a lot of. I know. I don't know about Aristotle specifically. I know that Plato is one of the famous ones that, and a lot of other Greek philosophers at the time of Plato, believed that because, kind of, I discussed it last week in a lesson, but they basically thought that if their gods that they went to in oracles could know the future, what was out there, then it had to be out there for them to be able to know about, and so through that they determined that. The world had to be settled because they knew the future and that God had to be outside of time because he couldn't change. They believed that all perfect creatures couldn't change. And if you if you experience time, which is sequence and duration, that's a change. Therefore, they think God can't be in time so because he would change. In time but not limited by it? I can, I, God, time is just a word we use that describes sequences, you know, A, then B, then C, and a duration. And so, yes, I believe that God experiences, experiences time since forever. From infinity past, and he'll experience time for, for infinity future. Because time isn't something that restricts God. It's just something that, a word that we use to describe sequence and duration. There's this website called uh, God and Science, I think it is. Okay. 
And uh, I like their description of it because it was, uh, it was talking about flatland as their example, like a Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man or something like that. They live in two dimensions. Okay. And along comes the cube, and they're like, what's a cube? Right? They don't understand the third dimension of the cube. But the cube could interact with their world by, you know, presenting itself. Into, I mean, they see differently than what the full nature of the cube is, but it could, in, you know, insert itself into the 2D some people do believe what's called the block theory of time where all of time in the universe is this big block that God's outside of and sees everything simultaneously and I know a lot of people in this congregation believe that however I personally do not believe that's possible because if God is outside of time he can't experience a change because a change is a sequence that has to have time to happen and I mentioned in a couple of classes that a few examples of that is there's many scriptures we talked about last week that I show that I believe showed that the future oh, is partly yeah. open. If the future is partly open, then God can't see the entire future all at once because if it's open to different possibilities, He would actually for you guys well, maybe, in this direction, He would see it. To. Okay. Right. I'm just saying maybe he limits himself willingly, you know, in order to, to allow what you were talking about, the free will and the, the multiple possibilities and stuff like that. Certain events, yeah, they're definitely going to happen. He declared mm -hmm. the end from the beginning. You, mm -hmm. know. you know, the big stuff that's going to happen. Right. I believe that some of the future is determined, and but some of it is, let's say it's partly open yeah. to possibilities that could exist. Kind of had to be that way for free will. I believe so, yes. And like I said, that's probably one of the things I'll be talking about next week when I go through the 10 most popular uh, objections that I've heard. And I'm going to attempt to rebuttal each of them. And so that'll be, you know, stay tuned next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. So I can't see hands way back there. Go ahead. Somewhere. Okay. Um, then when it says in Genesis, I mean, the first day I created all of this stuff, it's not a day like you know, it's God's day. Because God has existed for all, again, I believe, since God's existed for all eternity, He's existed for infinity past. At some point in time, by the way, he decided to create the universe because I don't believe the universe has always existed. I think he created it. And so at some point, he must have created the universe, which again is a before and after, which has to have time. But on day one, I believe that God created a way to measure time. But when he says, let there be light, he says that the first day have an evening and a period of uh, dark, evening, a period of light he called day and a period of night he called darkness or night and there was a first day saying so there was a period of darkness and a period of light that comprises all one day and then on day four when he created the sun moon and stars it says let them mark uh, let them mark special days and events i forget the exact uh verse but i believe god's actually making and again creating a measurement of time that makes sense for us and that we can use to be meaningful for humanity. 
So I believe that God experiences time the exact same way we do, meaning if I go one, two, three, well, what we call seconds, if that's approximately a second, I believe that God also experiences those three seconds the exact same way we did. It's just for him, since he's eternal, it kind of went by like that for him, whereas it seemed to have, relatively, relatively, relatively speaking, it seemed to take longer for us than God kind of thinks of it because he's eternal. He's always lived for all duration of time, and he's always will live for all duration in eternity. Does that somewhat kind of address what you're saying, or did I completely blow that? Okay. One, right. one of the reasons I think we exist separate or independent of time and okay. space is because of the cosmological argument. Of the okay. fact that If there was an infinity past, well, well, that's impossible because we're here at this moment. We can't cross infinity. As soon as you cross something, you define it as finite. So there had to be a beginning even of time itself. I disagree. Even, even Einstein didn't, he and his theory of relativity, his general theory of relativity, he doesn't state that there's a creation of time. He believes that time, and whenever the universe was created, that it became a time-space. It kind of merged together where time affects space and space affects time. And so I believe that the whole crossing of infinity argument is... I it depends on what part of Einstein's career you're talking about. Right. Because he, he later would admit that his cosmological constant was his biggest blunder. He wanted the universe to be self-existent for eternity past. But later, I think he admitted that wasn't so. And we've learned now about like quantum mechanics and quantum physics that when things get really, really big or really, really small, all of the Einstein's theories of relativity, they go out the window. And all of the way that we currently know science doesn't work when you get to things that are really big or really small. So I, we don't have the knowledge or wisdom to understand how all even things work yet. Anybody else? Okay, well, thank you, everyone. See you again next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.